Well, good morning. Take your copy of God's Word. Whether you're here with us in person or watching online, we welcome you. Uh, and we always preach what's next here. What's next is Psalms 57. We've been working through this, this section. We're finishing up book two of the five books of Psalms. Psalms is broken up into five books. This was the song book of God's people. And, and before we read and as you find your place... Many people think these seems to be sort of haphazardly put together. The Psalms are not haphazardly put together. God meant for us right now, as he did for his people, to be looking at these lament Psalms. He sovereignly ordained for us to be here. I chose to go back to the Psalms before I knew my storm. We're here for a purpose. These are not haphazard. We're on purpose looking at lament. Week after week after week, and God's done it on purpose. And so let's, let's stand up to understand our purpose in the midst of this that we are all going through and see how God's Word informs it. Psalms 57, to the choir master, according to the do not destroy, amidkim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destruction passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions, a lie amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp as swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let the glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my soul. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. And so, God, today, we've gathered here in your name. And we have welcomed all the peoples, whether in person or through the internet, to Come and hear from your word. We have been promised that your spirit is here. Helping us, interceding for us. Bringing clarity to us in the midst of our own personal storms. And the storms of those that we love and cherish. But Lord, Satan is not welcome here this morning. Nor his minions. And if they are plaguing your people, we do pray in Jesus' name that you will make them leave this morning because we are not here to focus on them. We are here to focus on you. 
And so, God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you banish fear and hopelessness from this room today to give us a living hope in the face of Jesus Christ? And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I had a dream the other night. It doesn't take a psychologist or a psychiatrist to figure out where this dream came from. So I pull up in, in this dream. I live in West Gastonia. So I pull up to our property, and on that property we had this little old barn that had been there forever. There were some people there. Not supposed to be anybody there. So I walked up and had these city officials, all of them were dressed up, and they had these plans that were stuck on the side of the barn, and, and they were going to build this big thing on our property. And I go inside the barn. And they had tables set up and all their little posters. And I was like, what's going on here? And they start telling me their plans. I'm sitting there going, hold on. This is my property. No one has asked us to come into this. Why, are you, why have you invaded my property making these plans on, on land that's not yours? I had two choices in my dream that was obviously clear. I could either just get in my truck and leave, or I could fight. Which one do you think I chose? You see, trauma and loss and disease and betrayal and hard times, and it's how we feel. We feel like I had a plan, <laughs> I had an expectation. And something has come into my life and into your life and turned it on his head. What am I supposed to do? And the only thing that psychology and even the church has been able to tell us is, well, you know, you got to go through these stages of grief now that this happened. And I can tell you from personal experience over the next, the last month or so, these aren't stages. These are just a very incomplete list of emotions that we feel when something bad happens in our life. They are not stages. There is no checkbox to grief. One day I am confident, assured, accepting, you would say. Next day I'm in a puddle on the floor. One day I'm mad and next day I'm singing. This is the way it is when bad things happen in our life. There's nothing pretty about it. Grief must be dealt with as it comes. We never know what is going to come tomorrow. Lament comes to our aid here. It gives us the tools necessary to grieve so that even in the midst of something that we don't understand, that we may not think is fair, that makes no sense to us, we can glorify God in our lives even though it does not leave. And what I want to add today to our lament that we've been looking at is the power of our memory. The power of our minds, because your mind stores everything that's happened in your life. <laughs> the problem is, as we get older, sometimes the filing cabinet doesn't open up quite as quick, and it's harder to find. But they're there. You see, when trauma blows into a person's life, it feels like your mind turns against you. It's working against you. Today is Orphan Sunday. We're going to be watching a video and talking about that here in a few minutes. But understand that this is what's happened in the fatherless life. This is what trauma does. 
that someone promised to love them, to provide for them, to protect them, and to never leave them, and they did it in the most formidable years in their life. And so there's a question mark that they live with. Does anybody love me? And will I ever trust anybody again? And can I trust you? How do we fight? <laughs> Just like I did in that dream, I'm sitting there going, oh no, we're going to fight. Matter of fact, before I woke up, I was going get, to get in my truck to go back home and to gather the troops. We was about to fight. How do we fight? To gain peace from the past trauma and present troubles. Lament is not the only tool, but it is a tool that we must learn how to use and to use it daily. And God can help us to use our own memories to trust God and live. Main idea, when we remember God's past mercies, it gives us hope in the present storms of life as it brings to us a renewed resolve to see God glorified in this world through our life. Three things. God's provision, our suffering, and our worship as a response. First, I'm not going to look at our suffering first. David doesn't. Let's just flow with the text this morning. Let's look at God's provision. We're going to spend a majority of our time here. For us to experience God's provision, he must send it. (laughs) We must receive it. And notice verse 1. God sends mercy. This was his need. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. And so, let's understand this word mercy. uh, Because sometimes as we think about mercy, you may think about not getting what you deserve. It's an understanding of mercy. That's not this word here. Look back at verse 56. I mean, chapter 56 and verse 1. It says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples me. That be gracious and be merciful in chapter 57 is the same word in Hebrew. So when you think about what David is asking, think he's asking him the same thing he asked in chapter 56. He's asking for grace. He's asking for favor, for compassion, for pity. And remember, in the Hebrew, when something's repeated, that's your exclamation point. He's not saying to this, you know, be merciful to me, God. I need your help. No, he's hollering this. Be merciful. Mercy, mercy. That's what I need right now. We can feel his passion and his pleas crying out to the Most High God. You see that in verse 2? To the Most High. Elion, Elohim. Spurgeon reminded me this week. Faith does not deserve mercy. Grace is not an entitlement. We come to, it, to God in our lives with humility and we ask the Most High God who just happens to be our Father for help and He sends it because Matthew 7 says that God loves to give good gifts to His kids just like we do. But we need to ask. We have not because we ask not. God sends His grace because we ask Him in faith. But God must act for David. David realizes this. I want you to see this morning that through all this stuff that we go through in our life, God's doing something. He's building something. He's bringing two distinct provisions into our life. One is a testimony. The other is a treasury. 
One He is doing in our life through all of this hard, but so that we may declare His goodness of His grace to other people. The other is like a trust fund. It's not like a check-ins account where you work hard, you get paid, you put it in the bank and you use it to, as you need it. This is something that God puts in for us. How dreadful it would be to step into eternity knowing that you had an account and you never pulled from it. God's doing something through this in our life. He's building a testimony and a treasury. And as we pray, He begins to send it. God sends refuge. Do you see it? Be merciful to me. What is this mercy going to look like? Second line, verse 1. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storm of destruction passes by. This is a very simple picture here. Refuge is something that you must enter into to get its benefit. If there's a storm, and there's a storm here, this is one of the safest buildings in Kings Mountain. If you look up, there's concrete over the top of us. There's concrete underneath us. There's a basement that's got concrete. This is a place to where if there was a storm, you'd want to come here. But you're not going to get any benefit to sit in the parking lot when the storm comes. The refuge must be entered into. The storm was Saul. The storm was what Saul was trying to do to David. It was his pursuit. So, did David consider the cave? We'll get to the context here in a minute. But David is in a cave in the context of this. Was the cave refuge? Well, the cave was more of a metaphor. You could say yes and no. The cave cave could be be a picture of the grave, of even death. But for David, it was a picture of hiding in God. Notice what it says here. For in you, my soul takes refuge. So where is refuge? God. What is that going to look like? In the shadow of your wings. It's God's wings that's going to provide. Now in the Bible... God often, the Bible oftentimes gives physical attributes. Sometimes look like people, sometimes it looks like animals, so that we can understand God better. That's what he's doing here with the shadow of wings. It's meant to help us understand how God cares for us. You can just listen to this passage or look it up in Ezekiel, just another illustration, chapter 1. How do you describe, how do the prophets describe God? I mean, how are you going to put that in words, right? All we can do is look around and sort of ascribe things to God as we understand and try to make some kind of a sense. Just listen to the word appearance, like, likeness in this passage, Ezekiel 126. And above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the like of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upwards from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward and from what had the appearance of his waist and I saw as it were an appearance of fire and there was brightness all around him like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain and so it was the appearance of of brightness all around. Do you see the point? He's trying to describe this indescribable. 
And so what is this refuge going to look like? What was in David's mind when he said, I will take refuge in the shadow of God's wings? Some people think he had in mind the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the cherubim? I think it's far more practical than that. The picture is being on a farm yard and the storm blows in and that little mama hens around and the, she feels the storm and the winds start to pick up and she starts a clucking and what does the little babies do? They, they gather. Where do they gather? Underneath mama. Because that's the only place that provides shelter. Listen, another point today being Orphan Sunday. Trauma children came to their mom during the storms of their life and mama wasn't there. You with me? And so God brings us as the church to show them that there's people who care. For David, it wasn't the cave. It was God who was his constant shelter. Things in his life are unstable right now. Didn't have a house Didn't have a security system he could punch. His shelter was not a cave. And listen, it was not a man or a woman either. It is not a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or a job or the stuff of this world. It is God that is your constant. It was God that was his constant. And here's what we know. God would deliver David from this. Not only that, God would deliver his enemy who was greater than him, into his hands multiple times. God sent refuge because God had already sent a purpose. God sent a purpose. Look at verse 2. I cry out to God most high, who fulfilled his purpose for me. God's grace in your life should look like something. Our faith in action should look like something. For David, this looks like refuge. It, David has trusting in God's promises. We talked about that last week. Because God had already ordained a purpose for his life. When did he ordain it? Before the foundation of the world. You have neither been through suffering and know not God's word. If words like election and predestination bother you this was his hope God has set a purpose for my life and I will accomplish that purpose God said it he will bring it to completion and nothing can stop it that was his confidence and we know not God nor his word If we don't know that God sets your purpose. God's mind is what really matters. And God had in his mind a purpose for David's life and for your life. And he will bring it to completion. David's confidence is beginning to grow in the cave. Because he's already seen what God is doing. Paul was in prison and what did he say? Philippians 1 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will do what? He will bring it to completion. When will it ultimately be completed? The day of Christ. Oh, God's going to make it right when he comes back. God began it because God sent it. And because God began it and God sent it, we know he's going to finish it. Lottie Moon, she was a fierce, unstoppable missionary. She said this, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal Until my work is done. And if you ever study her life, that's why she was unstoppable. And she gave her life 
for the sake of the kingdom. So what is that purpose? Well, it's the refrain, it's the chorus of this psalm. Look at verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. God's exaltation. That just means God's, our ability in our life to lift God up and to make much of Him so people could see Him is going to be in my salvation. So refuge, purpose, ultimately points to salvation. Verse 3. Notice where this is coming from. This is what has got me on this word send. God's going to send salvation. Look at verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who tramples on me. For us to win, somebody's going to lose. For us to have victory means the devil must be defeated. He will send from heaven. What is he going to send? See that in a minute. Salvation. Understand this. Salvation is not an achievement. It's not an award. For those who live a good life, it's a gift that comes from the Most High God that must be received by faith. Salvation, listen, this is, this is New Testament good. Salvation must come from heaven. Psalms 18, 16 says this. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the waters. God's salvation comes down and pulls us out of a situation that we could not escape from unless He saved us from it. Salvation must come from heaven. So God sent His Son. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are a son, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Salvation must come from heaven. So God sent His Son. Listen to this. I was working, I was working out someday in the last week, and I like sometimes to listen to Alistair Begg. He's not only a good preacher, he's got that really cool accent, you know. I was listening to him, and he, he was talking about 1 Samuel, and he goes off onto this little squirrely tangent. And quite honestly, the tangent was what got me. It wasn't a tangent at all. So turn with me. I want you to see this, 2 Timothy three fourteen. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is the chorus of all of Scripture. The chorus. What is a chorus? It is the repeated melodic line of a song. It is that which is repeated. The chorus is purposeful in a song. Those who write music, like Micah writes music, the chorus is is what they want you to go to. Listen to this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and Firmly believed. I'm in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So, what was the sacred writings that Timothy was reading? The Old Testament. That's what he was reading. 
All Scripture has as its melodic line the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's, here's, here's what the point Alistair Begg was making, that every time we see salvation in Scripture, we see it through the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. That when Timothy read Hebrews 2.4, the just shall live by their faith, he saw it through the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. That through Christ's finished work, He has declared me right before God because of what Jesus has done. Because I couldn't do it. And through faith, I have entered into that right standing and I'm going to live display that. I'm going to make much of Christ in my life. I'm going to live by that faith. That all of Scripture as New Covenant believers, we read with this melodic line being God sent salvation and it came through Jesus Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-removing substitute by His blood to be received, to be entered into, how? By faith. Salvation is the melodic line. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. And it is that faith that we have no matter our situation. My salvation informs my purpose. My salvation informs my purpose. Your salvation informs your purpose. I am to live for Him. Verse 3. Isn't that a good place for a sailor? You ought to think about that. Have you entered... Into the finished work of Jesus Christ by faith. There's nothing else matters. Nothing else comes. The peace and the joy will always be outside your reach. You will look at it in other people's life and wonder why it's not in yours. You must, have, you must be justified. You must be made right. You must be brought into the family. And then when you pray, God sends His provisions into your life. When God saves... He's not merely getting you some kind of of get-out-of-hell-free card or get-out-of-my-situation-free card. When God sends salvation, He sends Himself. And so when He sends Himself, look at verse 3. He sends His steadfast love and faithfulness. When God sends Himself, this is going to come. It does no good for someone to say that they love you and nothing comes with that love. God's steadfast love and faithfulness comes with them. Look in verse 3. Look at the first line and the third line. They're meant to be understood together. He will send from heaven and save me. Third line, verse 3. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. All of this for, for the Old Testament believers centered around Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. This is God's unbroken commitment to cherish and to protect His people and to always keep His word. To cherish, to protect, and to keep your word. There is no relationship in heaven or earth without those three things. 
You can climb in the sack with anybody and now have those three things and you do not have love. God missed these things. This is the only means of a lasting relationship in heaven or on earth. And listen to me. This is where we bring the pain back into the equation. If you don't process your pain, biblically, it will affect your ability to trust others. And no intimate relationship can exist without knowing that person loves me and I can trust them. This begins with God before it bleeds out into anybody else's life. Because if it doesn't start here with God, it will never happen with anyone else. God's steadfast love has a preserving quality to it in our life. When he sends it, it's, it's a preserving love. Listen to this. Psalms 40, 11 says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. It has a preserving quality, a keeping quality. This love is informed by holiness and truth. Psalms 43 verse 3 says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. In other words, this is just the absolute truth. Neither love nor truth ever flows out of darkness. So when you seek for truth, I got to find myself. And then they proceed to go out into the darkness to find it. Do you see the illogical nature of that assumption? I must, I'm going to go out into a dark, the dark world and I'm going to find love and truth. You can never pursue purpose in the darkness and ever expect to find it. Christ is our light. He informs, He lights up for us so that we know not only how to love him, but to how to love each other. God's provision, you see, all of that, all of that is cast on our suffering. That's why I ordered it this way. Sometimes we can magnify our suffering and minimize God's provision. I wanted to maximize God's provision, minimize our suffering, put it in light of the way God sees it. But listen, here's the truth. Present suffering needs new mercies. We need new mercies. Look at verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp as swords. So here David has went from Ahimelech where he has given food and a sword. He goes into Gath. You remember Philistine territory where he thought King Achish was going to kill him. He, uh, he escapes that only to have Saul hot on his trails, and he has now escaped to a cave called Adullam. That's where he's at here in this context. It is here that he begins to get these discontented, debt-ridden people that would become his mighty men. Even his, some of his own family begins to gather around him. Some 400 men while he's in this cave. But what, what is amazing when you read through the Psalms is what hurt David the most was people's mouth. It was what people said. The slander and the lies was far worse than the spears and the arrows. This is just an interesting verse here for me. 
because we know later Daniel and the lion's den story. This is David's lion's den. So what he's, this is the picture that he gives. I, I'm surrounded, and yet, don't miss it in this verse. He is able to lay down. That's, reminds you of Daniel, isn't it? Laying down in the midst of lions. How was he able to do that? David was in great danger, grave danger, but he's still able to lie down and rest. You see, that's God's provision in the midst of our suffering. He's still able to rest. David is, is not only receiving fresh grace, he is also being able to pull from the past grace in his life. That's that treasury that we're talking about. The things we go through and God's provision and God's salvation and God's rescue. How do you do that? How do we bring to mind past sufferings of God's old mercies? Look at verse 6. Now David's remembering here. They set a net from my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way that they have fallen into it themselves Uh, two words that's repeated in the bible remember or phrases and don't be afraid you ever wonder you think those two ideas are connected what we remember helps us to fight our fear of our present situation so here's the point remembering the past is key to living in the present Remembering the past is a key to having hope in the future. It doesn't make prayer unnecessary, but listen, in your darkest days, it will make it possible. David already knew, when I was hungry, God fed me. When I could not defend myself, he provided a means for my defense. When I had Goliath's descendants thinking, there he is, let's get him, he rescued me. Psalms 103, 2 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who's he speaking to? Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeemed your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who's satisfied with good? Who renews you like the eagles? My God did. You need to remember that. God's mercies brings the chorus back up in verse 5. Here we are again. This repeated chorus. The exalted, O God, in the heavens. In the midst of my situation, in the midst of my fear, in the midst of what we know and what we don't know. The chorus of our life is, I remember, and I will trust Him. God David knows here that God is building a testimony. He knows it. Isn't it amazing? 3,000 years later, here we are studying this psalm. That's the story that you need to remember. He wrote this in the midst of the dark night of his soul. And here we sit in the midst of our own troubles and say, Wow, look how God delivered David. But make sure... Here's the danger this morning. American individualism 
American individualism pollutes the glory of God because we just think our glory to God is about me and God. No, it's not. It's not. What God brings you through is not meant to be trapped inside your little personal self where me and God has a plan. No, God's glory is meant to go to the people's. It's meant to be spread. What He does in my life and what He does in your life is meant to be a testimony to the nations so that, as Piper said, the nations can be glad. The goal of history and the goal of our life is that God might be known as the only true God and worshiped for who He is. It's the purpose of your life. It's the purpose of mine. Notice it's interesting in verse 5 as He is not saying that God is or even that God will be. He's praying that God might be exalted. How? David wants God to be exalted in his personal circumstances right now. For all of a sudden in the cave, David has an audience. All of a sudden in the cave, there's 400 men who's more jacked up than he is. Who's saying, what do we do now? And David becomes the leader. All of a sudden, his life becomes a testimony. God's provision is said in the midst of our suffering, and it should bring a settled response in his people, and that's worship. Worship. You see, God's mercy is meant to bring an inward peace. An inward peace. Look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. This is the center of the wheel. A heart that's fixed. It's fixed. Even though he didn't know how in the world he was ever going to be king. He didn't know how God was going to fulfill this promise. It wasn't looking good in the physical. He was just trusting in God's promise. He was, his, his, his heart is fixed on what? Verse 10. Look at verse 10. That's what it's fixed on. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, and your faithfulness to the cloud. It was not that he was drumming up his, within his own self, his own security. His heart could be fixed because his love for God was fixed, and God's love for him. Just never think that you must get your heart fixed first, and then comes God's deliverance. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in the midst of my situation, I have resolved to worship God. And as I resolve to worship God, as I worship Him, my heart is renewed and my heart is fixed. Worship is first. We worship in the midst of our fear. Worship is how we fight, brothers and sisters. It's how you fight. Don't rob yourself of worship. Force feed yourself if needed. Our steadfastness is an anchor because of God, not because of ourselves. God's mercy will bring a settled resolve in your life. Awake my glory, verse 8. Who is he talking to? Our testimony must be first declared to oneself. The, the best person I can preach the gospel to is me. I need to hear it. Needed to hear it Friday when, you know, them doctors said, oh, yeah, no, Stephen, we won't make you wait over the weekend. Guess what Stephen had to do? Wait over the weekend. 
Now, if your heart's fixed on somebody who does not keep their word, you will always be, so to speak, on the floor. Our heart must be fixed on someone greater than people and doctors and all the rest. His glory. You see that? Awake my glory. What does he mean by my glory? It's his whole being. Awake all of me. For, for such a time as this, Lord, I need all of me awake. I don't need any of me asleep. I want to resolve to glorify you with all that I am and all that I have. That's what he's saying. He's preaching this to himself. The Psalms are full of, why are you downcast on my soul? Hope in God. But listen, make no mistake, verse 9. Things that happen in our life is to be a testimony to God's glory and for others. I will proclaim your glory to other people. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. I mean, his life is in imminent danger in David singing a missionary song. God's purpose for David's life informs his perspective even in times of difficulty. Your purpose does not change because a storm blows into your life. It's part of the purpose. It's building a testimony. It's building a treasury that God's going to use in your life and in others' life. His goal is for David is to bring glory to God for all the peoples. Yes, the Great Commission is right here in the Old Testament. The Old Testament looks forward to a time when the earth will be filled with God's glory. It looks forward to a time when Christ will be lifted up and draw all people to himself. It yearned for it. David longed for it. He was saved by faith because he looked forward to it. In times of suffering, and sometimes only as clear in times of suffering do we see God's power, his provision, and his purpose so clear. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste it. I'm preaching to myself as I preach to you. Don't waste it. David understands that his purpose is settled and he is resolved to finish it because God's glory is at stake and only living people can de- declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, deliver me and I will exalt you. God's mercy is meant to go out. Verbally and corporately, here's what David knows. Satan will not stop me, nor Saul, nor the Philistines, nor my career, nor cancer, nor trauma, nor depression, nor addiction. Nothing's going to... It sounds like a verse we know, don't it? Romans 8.35, who can separate us from the love of God? What has the ability? Does an economy in the toilet have the ability Does COVID have the ability? Does cancer have the ability? Does a a broken relationship have the ability? Does destruction and persecution have the ability? What what does it say? No, that nothing has the ability to separate you and me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul would go on to say. If it kills me, it takes me to Christ. Christ. If it leaves me here, it allows me to help others follow Christ. So we can say in Satan's face this morning, heads you lose and tails I win. Because either way, we're going to make much of Christ. Either by faith or by sight, we win. So what? 
Go back to our question in the beginning. How do we fight? How do we gain peace, past trauma, present troubles? I just want to be as practical as I can this morning. Because I need practical right now, and maybe you do too. Just that first question, think about it as we close. What do you need to remember? You need to tap into the treasury of your mind. You need to practice spiritual discipline because here's what you know. The bad things and the people that did bad things to you, your mind wants to focus on that like me staring at this box of tissues right here. That's your pain right there. And it's, it's saying, look at me, think about me, 